I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love was real. Near you, I long to be. The birds are singing, it is long time. The banjo strumming soft and low. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers uh, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the, the middle chapters of, of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. I think it's chapters 14 through 21 or so. Um, and uh, what's there to say about this section? Well, obviously, Main Street is the story of Carol Kennicott and her dreams of of creating an, a utopia in the american midwest her goal to to reform this place of gopher prairie in this sense it really does feel like a almost like a novel of the progressive era right uh i think that's somewhat on sinclair lewis's mind even though it's set before world war one it's it's kind of in that era of of reform and so you have different competing visions of reform going on uh, throughout the novel you have like People, more radical voices, people proposing some kind of socialist or anarchist uh, remaking of American capitalism. Those who focus more on moral, uh, religious reform, like let's transform the nation by, by sticking to our moral guns, kind of a more puritanical approach. You have people who say, well, we need more uplift. We need to maybe learn this from Europeans. We need to bring the culture of the cities to the countryside, uh, to the small towns, to the small cities. That's that's kind of Carol Kennicott's approach to it, and of course she's constantly frustrated by it. Um, in these middle chapters, we see some of her more dramatic uh, efforts fail, and she kind of embraces an effort to maybe uh, go at it in a little more practical, step-by-step manner, both in her personal life and in her attempts to reform the city. Um, so there's not so much to talk about thematically. It's like pretty much laid out there but there are some interesting things in these chapters to to lay out so really as these chapters open up um well i guess yeah i think we where we last uh our last chapter we talked about was chapter 13 and she met guy pollock and there's like some sexual tension with this guy so um you know she kind of sees some maybe fracturing of her relationship there but later on she'll she'll kind of be disappointed with guy pollock as well that's that happens a lot to uh poor carol kennicott she finds someone she's like oh maybe this can be the person who can maybe change things and she gets kind of affected by them and then as she gets to know them more she's like oh that's all there is to them that's all there there are and she she really has high standards and i think it's she's a little often unfair to main street I think that's a theme of the story as well. But there are issues with Main Street. It is very much the Tocquevillian vision of American democracy, this kind of mundane, uh, this how everything sort of descends to the mean, right? Um, culturally, intellectually, it all descends to this mean. There isn't like the peaks of, of, of achievement. But she gets a bit of it here through her husband. And I think that's what makes it interesting. Because by this point in the novel, you see her really kind of giving up on her husband and really just being disappointed with with Kennecott. Um, but here she, she says, okay, let's try to embrace Kennecott and see what he is. And so she, so through chapters 14, 15, 16, it's a lot about her relationship with Kennecott and her efforts to sort of um, 
focus on on him and learn more about him and actually become sort of make him the focus of her dreams I guess and there's some successes to there she tries to uh, uh, you know see him as a hero I guess that's one way to put it to see him as a heroic figure in some ways he is and she witnesses things that do make him off to be a hero at the same time she's still disappointed in him for instance she goes to his office and I guess this is the first time she really goes to his office and she sees it really as a drab boring just like everything else in Gopher Prairie she sees it as kind of a bland thing and she's like well maybe I can fix this up so maybe I can remodel this um, she goes uh, I think Kennecott says why don't you go talk to this woman Mrs. Bogart she's kind of a reformer too and when she goes to talk to this Miss Bogart she's again disappointed because Bogart is a very very religious person very much focused on moralism it's really the religious conservative type of reform where the vision is like let's get all the kids to Sunday school let's uh, get them reading the Bible and then this will be our future for Gopher Prairie this will make Gopher Prairie a better place um, but she continues to follow Kennecott around and she like sees him injure fix up an injured farmer that's maybe the most heroic moment where he like loses an arm he has to like amputate and she sees him be the great doctor doing accomplishing great things um, now there's something interesting about marriage throughout the section too because this marriage with Kennecott is not really a romantic I mean we don't see the cliches of romantic love here it's not that's not what the relationship seems to be based off of it is it is on the surface very conventional but Carol's not content with that so she has to sort of make her husband a hero to fulfill that more romantic need in her in her heart and it and it doesn't really work in a lot of ways like on an emotional level but she is able to see him as a hero uh, through his medical work so that's kind of an interesting aspect of it now after this she she has a Christmas party and then her her hopes are sort of dashed again she's always having these ups and downs it's um, makes it uh, makes the novel a little bit repetitive at times but it, it's fine now, you know life's a long time you live for quite a while and you you have these ups and downs in all relationships and her relationship with Gopher Prairie and Kennecott goes through these same up or down there's like a bipolar almost uh, attitude you, you get from the text and the Christmas party is another down point for her because she's just saddened by like what she's lost there's a quote later on in the novel, I think it's not in this section, it's maybe in chapter 22, where she talks about, like, this could be New York City. Like, if I was in New York City, yeah, there's more people, but I would still only know 100 of them. And I know 100 people here in Gopher Prairie. So why can't this provide everything that New York City provides? Why can't it be that? And she's trying to, again, kind of impose something else on this town. But... And it's the same with her marriage. She wants to that marriage to be something more than what it is, which is in the end a very, very conventional capitalist kind of marriage where they each have their roles and they each provide something to each other. And it, it's kind of a companionship of sorts, but it's not, it's not, it's always not fulfilling for her. And, and I think this is true for everyone. No matter where you are, you always feel some discontent with where you are, right? And then when you move somewhere else, you miss that old place. I move around a lot, so I, I've experienced this a lot. When you're in a place, it, you feel the mundaneness of it, and you can dream of someplace else. And when you get there, you're disappointed. And that's how it is with Carol, with her marriage and her acquaintances throughout Gopher Prairie. A little bit sad, perhaps, but I think it's very, very common experience. Um, so she's like, maybe I can engage in Kennecott's hobbies and have a relationship with him that way, but she just doesn't like his hobbies. His hobbies are like, he does some hunting, 
real estate speculation is something he does. He's got his work, of course. There's nothing really in her hobby, in his hobbies that can awaken anything in poor Carol. Now, so this sort of fails too, and she she never quite gives up her hopes of reforming the town. Uh, she sort of uh, still dreams that it can be a utopia, and you know these dreams get kind of preposterous after a while, and it, it's kind of silly the way she keeps going back on her same dreams. But she goes to see Guy Pollock again, and I think she's with someone else. Is she with Vita? Vita in this scene too? Well, at least she's with Guy Pollock, uh, and. Um, she kind of pr presents her dreams to him and he's like, oh, I understand. You want to go back to the good old pioneer days, rustic, you know, utopia, whatever. And she's like, no, that's not really what I want. And, and so even though she was really enamored with Guy Pollock earlier in the story, now she's sort of uh, diffused in her hopes of, of Guy Pollock being someone who can understand her. And she's not hard to understand. It's just the problem is she doesn't understand the town and she's not really realistic about it. So anyway, she's once again deflated, um, but th we see hope in this guy, Mike Bjordstrom, who she was really interested in before. This more kind of this mad Swede, the red Swede, some whatever they called him, like the socialist minded anarchist type of uh, Swede, working class. He, he, we met him before because he was like fixing up the houses for everyone during the winter. Um, but he's there, they like, hire him to cut wood for the winter and he's doing that and and you know, I think Carol is a little bit disappointed when it, when she sees the affection Mike uh, and B, her maid, seem to have for each other. It's like more of a, you know, it's where Mike Bjornstrom's kind of eyes are. He's not looking up at Carol Kennicott as a potential maid. She's married, of course, and of a different class and different attitude. And even though they have good conversations, uh, her, his eye gaze towards uh, B, and that's like another, uh, it's... You know, I think that's a theme in this novel, too, is Carol's kind of wandering eyes. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, how her marriage isn't providing what she needs. So she's looking for other men to fill that up. And and sometimes that that kind of does get towards the romantic with like Guy. And, and you see that with Miles, too. Um, so that's that's a lot of fun. Um, then we get a couple of relatively boring chapters uh, based around Carol's next reform attempt, which is much more practical, I should say, than her dream of like remaking the city hall. That was one dream she had. That didn't go anywhere. But she has another dream, which is to form a drama club and to put on plays and things. But once again, once she puts the group together and starts planning it, she's um, frustrated once again by... Um, by what kind of play they want to put on. She wants to put on some like Oscar Wilde or something. It was Oscar Wilde, Bernard Shaw, some, someone like that. And so she wants like a highbrow play, high, highbrow play. And they're like, well, that's not really good for our town. And they instead put on a play called The Girl of, of Kakakee, which is kind of just a silly little romance. And it's a pretty low brow play. Um, and even that's a disaster. Like, no one takes it that seriously. The actors don't really practice that much. And it's not well attended. And it's, and it's frustrating. Now, here I want to criticize Carol again. Because she, the way she deals with adversity. And to sort of give up and move on to the next thing. Uh, which can be, can be a source of creativity. But she doesn't follow through on anything. Like, the, the drama club is not a really bad idea there was some interest in it 
it's something that she could have built up of uh, built up from but instead she just turns her back on it so it's it there's a argument here for persistence i suppose um but i think ultimately sinclair lewis thinks that main street is is not capable of these things and it, and, and this comes up really clearly in chapter 22 but nonetheless it's the play's kind of a big disaster but there is a in chapter 19 there's something i really like uh it's a little section about the train because technology is kind of in the background of much of this story and uh you know it's oh, actually in the opening passages like how Main Street sort of the pinnacle of Western civilization and Western technology. And in a way, the railroad de- railroads do make Main Street. It makes these small towns. It moves them from the frontier to the mainstream of American culture, which is, of course, this, it drives it to the mean, right? So maybe Guy Pollock has a point that really where you want to go is the frontier, because that's where these towns are going to be distinctive and unique and have something special. But once it's all connected by railroads, it brings American banality to mains to these towns and once it's there it's kind of inescapable um here what what does she write here uh what does he write here the railroad was more than a means of transportation to go for prairie it was a new god a monster of steel limbs oak ribs flesh of gravel and a stupendous hunger for freight a deity created by man that he might keep himself respectful to property as elsewhere he has elevated and served a tribunal, gods, the mines, cotton mills, motor factories, colleges, armies, end quote. So that's all really good stuff. That's uh, really like, it sums up kind of a history of technology and civilization in very interesting ways. That each epoch sort of has its technology, its, its um, totem, if you will, its technological totem, and it's the railroad in early 20th century America. Quote, the East remembered generations where there had been no railroad and had no awe of it. But here the railroads had been before time was. The towns had been staked out on barren prairie as convenient points for future trail halts. And back in 1860 and 1870, there had been much profit, much opportunity to found aristocratic families in the possession of advanced knowledge as to where the towns would arise. If a town were in disfavor, the railroad could ignore it, cut it off from its commerce, slay it. To go for a prairie, the tracks were eternal verities. The boards of railroad directors and omnipotence. The smallest boy or the most secluded Grandam could tell you whether number 34 had a hot box last Tuesday, whether number seven was going to put it on the extra day coach, and the name of the president of the road was familiar to every breakfast table. Even this new era of motors, the citizens went down to the station to see the trains go through. It was their romance, their only mystery besides mass of the Catholic Church, and from the trains came lords of the outer world, traveling salesmen with piping on their waist coast and visiting cousins from Milwaukee. And there's more on this. This is a really great section that I think is uh, thematically very crucial to what Lewis is trying to do in Main Street. But why Gopher Prairie is the way it is. Why this banality? And it's something tied to um, the the technological superstructure of the the town. So, um, yeah, I I like that stuff. Now, but that aside, though, I found these chapters... 1819 about the play kind of boring i wasn't that interested in that stupid play they were putting on but maybe that's the point we're supposed to feel as bored maybe as as carol Kennicott is is um now as the chapter ends we learn world war one breaks out and it's you know america's isolationist at this point the whole country is now maybe some communities are interested in the war german american communities maybe more anglo communities uh but certainly not the gopher prairie gopher prairie from their point of view, the, the war may not even happen. 
But of course, the war is going to be significant for America. Uh, and probably by the end of the story, we're going to see a bigger role for the war, I guess. Um, so, um, yeah. So now when we get to chapter 20 and 21, we kind of go back to the theme of marriage in two ways. Uh, in chapter 20, we see Carol being pregnant. And she's, she's I mean, children were, were halfway through the novel. And they've been married pretty much the whole novel. And they haven't had a kid. And now they're having a kid. And this is just one more nail in the, the coffin of conventionality or whatever. And that's the wrong metaphor. It's the the nail in Carol's uh, dreams of, of, of reform, I suppose. Because she's going to be bound by conventionality. The nails are conventionality, nailing, burying her, her dreams, I guess. And she, it's harder to escape that if you're bound by family in one place. And that's what she's going to be. And she doesn't like it at all. She doesn't like the idea of being a mother, of, of the day-to-day -day burden of raising a kid. It's going to cut into any other dream she has. But... Um, it ties her more and more to go for prairie. And at this point, we get the first big time jump in the book where they, she gives birth to her son, Hugh, and they just sort of jump two years. So we zip through in one chapter, basically two years of Carol's life where she's just basically taking care of this little kid, Hugh, and she, she's sort of kind of miserable through the whole thing. And now I, say, I said we get kind of another view on marriage through the character of uh, Vita Sherwin. Um, and Vita Sherwin is an older... Uh, woman, 36 years old, worried about becoming a, a spinster of sorts, uh, worried, uh, she's like the teacher, right? So she's worried about becoming, and a friend of Carol's, but she's worried about becoming uh, like an old maid. So she just uh, marries a guy. And so we really get the story of that courtship here. So it's kind of a little side story here about uh, Vita Sherwin. Um, but she embraces marriage as, as something inevitable and something something she wants and so there's a tension between carol who's kind of had this come to her easily and early in life and and vita who's come to it later in life but it's something that she wants and is, is quite content with and that's of course another theme of the book is everyone around her seems to be quite content with gopher prairie they may say oh we need this fixed or that fixed but at the end of the day they're pretty happy with gopher prairie the way it is I like vita is very happy with her her marriage so I guess that's it. I have not too much to say about it, except for the train scene, the train description. Um, nothing much affected me too much in this this section of the novel, but I think it does carry on the, a lot of the themes. It goes deeper into marriage, I think. There's a lot that's going on. Um, but also, I guess her, her, her ambitions are getting a little bit more practical, like find meaning through marriage, start the, the play thing, you know, I think at one point she even gets assigned to like the school board or like the, no, the library. And she's even frustrated in her effort to buy new books there. So, but that's at least something that's more grounded. It's not as lofty as some of her early dreams of like remaking the architecture of the whole town or whatever. But um, yeah, I guess that's it. We'll keep this episode short and, um, and, uh, and yeah, cause I think there's not too much to say, but let me know as you think about any of this. If you've read uh, Main Street, I really would be interested in your, your opinions. Um, we're going to come to the end. Two more episodes. We'll finish up Main Street, and then we'll get into a three-episode series on Babbitt and, and kind of close up. Probably all I'm going to say about Sinclair Lewis in this whole run of this podcast, unless I find another volume of his works that, that comes out. I think it's just the two volumes uh, published by the Library of America. 
but he's he's a lot of fun. He's 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 an interesting um, writer. This isn't my favorite of his novels. I think Aerosmith so far has been my favorite. Elmer Gantry is a lot of fun too, but um, yeah, that's gonna be it for now. So um, yeah, let me know what you think of Sinclair Lewis, Main Street, any of his works. Send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail dot com. Uh, and I'll see you next time as we get to part four of my review of Main Street. Uh, thanks once again for listening. Waiting for me, praying for me, down by the Sunny. The folks up north will see me no more when I go to that Swanee Shaw. Swanee, Swanee, I am coming back to Swanee. Mammy, Mammy